stressed that's okay for those not in our lives that don't know what's happening right now we've been trying for an hour to get something to work that hasn't been working so we're trying to get some better audio quality since we are now states apart again but that might have to wait for the next episode sorry guys we tried really hard (laughs) i really did i even tried to code (laughs) it was great um, I'm not computer inclined, so oh well. But it's okay. Our stories will still be great, I assume. <laughs> so how Obviously. has your day been today? Um, okay. Uh, um, just doing the grad school thing again. Have been for two weeks now. That's great. All I can say is I'm glad to be here. Ha, oh, ha, ha. <laughs> How about you? I'm okay. My little sister is over at my house right now. She's in the other room with the dogs. That's um, always lovely. I got a flu shot today because at my school, I went to go pick up one of my kindergartners. And in the kindergarten class, there was a total of eight children there because the rest <laughs> had the flu. That's and awful. Yeah, and the kindergarten teachers are making them wear little face masks so that they stay safe and healthy. And so I was, oh. I had, I had a four-year-old cough in my face about a dozen times today. <laughs> oh no! So I was like, I need the flu shot because I got the flu last year in February. So oh, that's gross. So my entire family went, like all four of us, <laughs> went and got flu shots today. Well, I hope that it works out. Me too. And that you don't get the flu. I know. I generally don't get flu shots because I always feel bad afterwards. And I have never gotten the flu except for last year. But I caught it super early, so I felt better by the next day. Oh, that's good. I started doing the natural remedies and stuff, which really helped. So this year, I really don't want the flu because I don't have the days to take off. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't need the flu. Mm-mm. But that's Mm-mm. where I'm at. Well, I think that's a pretty okay place to be, right? Yeah, not sick. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry for those of y'all who do get the flu. <laughs> in advance and in the past. <laughs> <laughs> All-encompassing. You know, if this podcast ever does get, like, spread wider than it is now, wouldn't it be crazy if someone was listening to it, like, while they're sick with the flu, like, five years down the line? Ooh. Well, we feel bad for you. We feel bad for you, future person, and we hope that you get better. Um, Nobody needs to be sick. Thoughts and prayers. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, well, with that in mind, what is our topic today? <laughs> it's not the flu. <laughs> Idaho. Idaho. And if there's anybody Idaho. in Idaho with the flu, get better, you know? Listen up. I'm talking to you. <laughs> yeah, you, Michael. Michael! <laughs> get better. Um, but yeah, we're talking about Idaho. Have you ever been to Idaho? As usual, I do not have any Idaho stories. Um, yes, yeah, except that. Wait, I do have one that has nothing to do with the actual state. When okay. I was in college, I had a friend and we were really close, and we convinced people that we could read each other's minds. <laughs> and so, like, if I said, we had like set things. So if I said, think of a dessert, I knew what she was going to think of. And then if I said, think of a state or think of a capital, like I knew we had pre-planned it for each other. And Uh. so my go-to for when she asked me, think of a state was always Idaho. (laughs) (laughs) The land of the potatoes. And that's exactly why, because I love ah. me the tates. You love you some spuds. Some spoods. Some spuds, some roots. Mm, that starch. Yum. Um, I have a friend from Idaho uh, that I go to grad school with. Her name yeah. is Brooke. She's pretty cool. <gasps> what? Yeah. I know. I really like her. Uh, I'm glad she's in my life. That's my Idaho. She also has... The most adorable dogs ever. She has golden retrievers. And I enjoy seeing them every day. Nice. (laughs) Pictures of them, obviously. Right. Well, I'm still going to contest that my dogs are the most adorable, but I will allow you that. Well, one of them is part golden retriever, so I guess it can kind of count. He's a golden weenie. (laughs) (laughs) He has a butt curtain and it's just so cute. (laughs) His All name right, is Scooter. Well, yes. Him. No, he really is just an old man, huh? Yeah. That's why, I, that's why he's my spirit animal. <laughs> In dog form. I'm more of a cat person, but well, I accept he is him basically he's a kind cat. of a cat. Yeah. Well, let's get into the trivia then. Yeah. Let's dive in. Let's hop in. Let's embrace the trivia. Yeah, I feel like this is going to be a long one, so let's go. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Um, so I go first. Okay. Which hotel in Idaho was dubbed one of the world's top 20 most fun and exciting places to stay? That's the title of the article. Okay. By the London Times. And they are all themed, just FYI. So A... Ghost Town Inn. B, Fish's Delight. A hotel stay <laughs> in a fishy way. It's basically <laughs> an aquarium. Well, you stay in an aquarium. Yeah, there we go. Uh, C, Oregon Trail Wagon Inn. Mm. D, Dog Bark Park Inn. <laughs> and E, Cowboys Rough Riders Hotel. I'm going to say the Oregon Trail one. Where you stay in a wagon? Yeah, and hopefully don't get dysentery. (laughs) 
Well, sadly, no. I made that up. A good one. I appreciate it. Uh, the answer is actually D, the Dog Bark Park Inn, and it is located in North Central Idaho in Cottonwood, Idaho, and the room is located in a beagle-shaped structure, <laughs> and I have pictures. <laughs> I'm going to send them go. to you. I want to go. Okay. Yes, I agree. Let me... Add it to the list. Add it to the list. We are going. <laughs> they are beautiful by the way (laughs) oh my gosh i've seen those like it's massive it's It's a massive i love them yeah so you can stay in them and london time said that it was exciting i agree yeah are you ready for my trivia no (laughs) you really are we're jumping in oh wait 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 i just have to tell you that i made up all of those So even the aquarium, I'm proud. I'm sorry. I just had to brag about myself. Okay. Anyways, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Trivia one. What was the name of the cult that could be found in Jonestown? A, the covenant, the sword, and the arm of the Lord. Yes. B, order of the solar temple. (laughs) C, Heaven's Gate. Whoa. D. The People's Temple. Whoa. Or E. The Children of God. <laughs> I love that one. Um, wasn't it the People's Temple? It was. Okay, my hands were sweaty. I was really worried about getting that wrong. <laughs> No, it was, but all of the other ones are names of real cults. I love the children of God because same. <laughs> well, I wonder what you're talking about today. <laughs> it's not that. Thank God. I don't know if my heart could handle it. Um, <laughs> so, second question. How many states are split between time zones? So, like, the state oh. has multiple time zones in it. And there are four main time zones. Because I am a horrible person, and I'm just doing the line time zones. I'm not doing the, like, tribal time zones. Yeah. Sorry. It's no disrespect. I was just... It's not cutting in half. It's just in a certain area. Um... And so I'm just doing the four main time zones. A, 9. B, 15. C, 13. D, 6. Or E, 18. I really don't know, and I am really garbage with time zones. So I'm just going to guess 9. Good try. <laughs> um, so there are actually uh, 15 different states. Okay. So I guess it would be five main time zones because the first one is Alaska and that one goes into the Hawaiian time zone. So I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry, my bad. So there's okay. Alaska, Ar- Arizona, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Nebraska, Nevada, North Dakota, Oregon, South Dakota, 
Tennessee, Texas. These are all split into two different time zones. Yeah, I would not have known that. I didn't even know Texas was split into different time zones. Yeah, uh, the El Paso area is in the Rocky Mountain. So mountain zone, mountain time zone. Gotcha. That's understandable. Texas is so big. I would, I would assume that it was, but I didn't know that it was, you know? Yeah, I get it. Same. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> We both learned something new. Woo! All right. This one you're going to have to listen close because it's about dates. Oh, no. Did I write down the answer? I did. Okay, I was, I was about to be worried. <laughs> All right. (laughs) Trivia number two. In what year was the National Mental Health Act signed? Hmm. A, 1946. B, 1952. C, 1937. D, 1929. Or E, 1961. That's a very good question. So if it (laughs) helps, there are dates from the 1920s to the 1960s, if that helps you. Yeah. Like one answer per decade. Right. Well, so I don't know if it would be the 20 slash 30 or the, because there's World War One, there's World War Two. Two, and then Vietnam War. So I don't know if they would have started it after World War One or World War Two or Vietnam. Mm. But Vietnam was in the seventies, so never mind. Just kidding. <laughs> but the sixties. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, since I don't know, I'm gonna go with the sixties. No, you're close. It was actually in 1946. I'm not close. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Harry Truman signed it. Cool. Loved. He was a true man. Wow. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So that was in 1949? 46. 46. Sorry. I get those mixed up. 46. That would make sense, because that would be right after World War II. Yes, ma'am. Or, like, right there in that 46, so right in that area of World War II. But, cool. Love that. Well, after that true trivia, let's hop right into it, shall we? Hop, hop, hop. Hop, hop, hop. So, I drew... (laughs) Well, I actually didn't know what I drew, and Jessica brought to my attention that there were several categories that I had just, you know, weaseled on by and didn't draw. <laughs> I've been keeping tally of which ones we've been doing. I'm pretty <laughs> even. You're pretty even, too. There was just a couple that were, like, smaller. Yeah, and since I hadn't thought about, you know this topic in a while I had forgotten so I decided to give myself history since that was one of the topics that I hadn't really covered so I decided to do 
first since I had no idea. A really horrible story. So then I scrapped that and then I decided to do the old Idaho State Penitentiary. Ooh. Yeah. So the State Penitentiary opened its doors for the first time in 1872. And a quote from AETV.com is, The prison was run by the federal government until 1890, when Idaho transformed uh, from territory to statehood. That's whenever the state started to take over the penitentiary, which didn't really do much for it because it was kind of still just horrible. Um, But, I mean, the laws became more... Idahoian instead of federal. The location of the penitentiary is just outside of Boise, Idaho in Atta County. Atta County. (laughs) Yeah. That's an... (laughs) You're doing great, County. Um, (laughs) So the address for the prison is 2445 Old Penitentiary Road, Boise, Idaho, 83712. Go check it out if you're in Idaho. (laughs) Whoa. And you will know you have made it when you see the marker mounted on the entrance of the penitentiary cemetery. (laughs) Mm. Uh, And in the cemetery, this kind of like opens the the mood, I guess, for the penitentiary's history. The tombstone is Lester Moore, 1851 to 1881. The The quote on the tombstone is, here lies the body of Lester Moore, shot by a guard with a forty-four. Now there is no less, no more. I've seen stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, of course, there are m- more tombstones than just that one, but right. I thought it was clever. <laughs> so the prison was built by the prisoners using the sandstone extracted from a local quarry right outside of the walls. Mm-hmm. And every building basically was built by the prisoners themselves because part of their recreational work was to go and mine stones so it's kind of like in all of the cartoons that you see well that's real (laughs) when you're watching spongebob swing a pickaxe yeah so at first there was only one single cell building but by the time the prison closed its doors in 1973 there were 15 buildings housing over 600 inmates. Mm. Throughout its 101 years of operation, it received more than 13,000 inmates, with only 215 of these being women. However, out of these 1,300 inmates, at least 129 of them are confirmed to have died within the walls of the penitentiary from either old age, illness, or even murder. And mm. it didn't really go into how, you know, the murders took place, but I'm assuming a lot of it was at the hands of guards and other inmates because how else do you get murdered? But I would actually put more on guards murdering them because it was a pretty rough place to be, you know? Right. It wasn't for the faint of heart. There is an area called the Rose Garden and it's covered in roses. And. <sighs> Whoa. Well, I mean, sometimes they have really goofy names because they're being sarcastic. (laughs) Right. Uh, But it is the Rose Garden, and it holds a dark and thorny history. 
for this was once the location of death row. Here, six of ten executions held in the pen- penitentiary were conducted by hanging, and uh, some pretty notorious people were hung there. So the new cell house, that's the name of it. <laughs> They're very creative, obviously. Right, you know, Rose right. Garden, new cell house. It was built in 1889 near the now Rose Garden, which consisted of three tiers of 42 cells. Steel cells, by the way. The inmates also built the administration building, which held the Warren's office, armory. (laughs) I don't know why that made me laugh, but I instantly just thought of them, like, gearing up to go joust. I don't know. Um, The visitation room, the control room, and the turnkey area. Uh, They also built the false front buildings, which held the commissary, the blacksmith shop, and the trusty room. They also had a dining hall, which was actually designed by one of the inmates named George Hamilton, the love child of George Washington and Hamilton. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And the cell house number two, also known as the North Wing, and later cell house number three, And these contained two man cells with honey buckets or toilets. And all in the span of seven years, these were built. They also had a baseball team. And you know what their name was? They were known as the Outlaws. (laughs) (laughs) It was later turned into a softball team because the baseballs were too dangerous. Um... (laughs) <laughs> softballs aren't they're bigger <laughs> i don't know i think it's because you can throw baseballs faster usually mm. um which means their impact would be harder Woo! that's why it softballs are named as softballs not because they're soft so there was also a dungeon under one of these buildings and it was used around the 1890s and it was used as a punishment cell. <laughs> Yay! Ooh. So two of the earlier famous people who were housed behind these prison bars in the early 1900s were Harry Orchard and Lida Southhard. Mm-hmm. Um, so Orchard uh, assassinated former governor Frank Stuenberg and was later cross-examined for his multiple murders, bigamy, heavy drinking, compulsive gambling, womanizing, and his career as a union terrorist that claimed him 17 lives, including the former governor. Wow, jeez. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, Orchard had killed the governor at the request of a unionizer, Big Bill Haywood, who was seeking revenge for the governor's harsh, harsh crackdown on the miners in Idaho during 1899. In exchange for killing the governor, Orchard had received several hundred dollars and a ranch. I am assuming not a bottle of ranch, but unless, unless it was Jeffree Star's bottle of ranch that he gave to Shane, which mm-hmm. was covered in the Schwarzsky crystals, that's probably pretty expensive. Uh, I don't know what Orchard would do with a ranch, basically, is my only concern. <laughs> right. But, anyways, it wasn't Jeffree Star's ranch. 
he received an actual ranch, but then he was caught. Uh, during the trial, he was sentenced to death, but the judge recommended his sentence be uh, to be committed to life in prison instead, and the Board of Pardons agreed. Uh, Orchard lived 45 years of his life in the prison, which was the longest sentence ever to be given to any Idaho State Penitentiary person, and he lasted the longest, pretty much. He wow. died in 1954. Yeah. Oh. So Lydia Southard was also known by the n- notorious name of Idaho's Lady Bluebeard. She was known for killing several of her husbands to collect their life insurance policies, and it was because of her, though, that the prison would later develop a separate quarter for the female inmates that had not been developed yet. Hmm. Uh, so the male inmates built a wall around the old warden's house to serve as a separate holding facility for female inmates. The facility had seven two-person cells, a central day room, kitchen, and bathroom facilities. And she died there as well, of old age, I think. Hmm. In 1912... The blacksmith shop was transformed into the hospital and remained the prison hospital until the 1960s. Yeah. Um, well, I'm just saying that that's really interesting because 1912 and 1960 are two very different decades with two very different um, hospital policies, I guess. <laughs> yeah, unless they were updating it. I don't know. I don't think so. So in the early... 1920s the first solitary confinement this is hilarious i'm sorry the early uh the first solitary confinement section was built and was later known to the inmates as the cooler but unlike other solitary confinements this particular section contained cells which held up to four to six men <laughs> so it wasn't oh, solitary confinement no <laughs> but that's what They're they gonna had be- solitary together (laughs) yeah so i don't know if there was like a guard sitting out of the cell like hey be quiet you can't be talking this is solitary confinement like lunch detention (laughs) yeah i'm assuming that's what it was like but whatever oh uh in 1921 cell house number three became a shoe factory (laughs) okay Because it was condemned because it wasn't suited enough to be holding people. In 1923, the building by the name Multipurpose Building. I love the names. They were great. It was how you what they are. (laughs) Exactly. It was built by the inmates, obviously. And it served as a shirt factory, shoe shop, bakery, license plate shop, laundry, hobby room, and loafing room. I loaf you. <laughs> I don't know what loafing means, but maybe it's an Idaho slang word. I don't know. Maybe I'll be corrected. Um, it also housed the com- the communal showers. So in 1926, uh, Siberia, aka the secondary no, the second solitary confinement area, was built. Probably after they realized the first was not an actual solitary confinement <laughs> area. That's my only guess. And it housed it housed 12 three-foot by eight-foot cells, which is one inmate per cell. Oh, 
which I hope so, because I don't know how it would fit more than one person into that. That's like a closet, not even a walk-in closet. Uh, um, So that was pretty horrible. In 1928, cell house number three was again remodeled (laughs) into another cell house, which became the first house with indoor plumbing. This was in 1928. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would hope that they finally had plumbing. In 1952, we're making a jump. Cell house number four was built, and it was the largest and most modern building on the site. The inmates were even allowed to paint their cells. That's actually cool, but like... On their walls. Which can still be seen today. But that's cool. That is really cool. I want to paint my walls. (laughs) I can do that. I own this house. In 1954, the cell house number five was constructed for the purpose of maximum security. And that is where the most violent inmates would be held. And it served as a permanent place for solitary confinement. Um, But I think they had bigger rooms and closets. I hope so. It also included their very own built-in gallows and new uh, death row. So they had two death rows. Wow. In 1957, Raymond Allen Snowden was executed at the prison. He was executed for the murder of Cora Dean, which occurred in Garden City on September 23, 1956, which also gave him the name Idaho's Jack the Ripper. Mm. He also later confessed while he was in prison to two other murders that were never... uh, identified but um he was actually the last execution to take place at the old penitentiary oh yeah interesting it wasn't yeah it wasn't until 1971 to 1973 that range of years uh after two severe riots broke out among the inmates that the penitentiary finally closed its doors as a prison the inmates were suffering through inhumane conditions due to the sandstone walls which intensified the temperatures outside the cells making the summertime heat three times as hot and the winter three times as cold since sandstone is a great insulator if you have insulation or if you need Mm. insulation um it also didn't help that the prison's guards tended to resort to violence against the inmates that eventually led to them to be pushed over the edge. Um, and the prison, the prisoners burned down the chapel and the dining hall, oh. both to the ground, um, and damaged many other buildings. And today, that's all you're able to see. Even the calendars burned and etched into the walls of the cells because um, the sandstone got so hot that it melted right. to the walls. Because everything was just left as it was. They just got up and left after it was closed. And the prison is open for tours um, for visitors. Uh, Usually you're not taken into the cemetery due to respect, but you're able to be toured around everywhere else. Um, And it's run by the Idaho State Historical Society. There are special exhibitions, including a collection of tapes and transcripts from oral interviews with 15 former prison guards covering prison operations and remembrances from the 1950s 
to the closing of the prison. Um, but that's not all. Mm-hmm. Due to wild history of this place, is, I'm, I might be dipping into some paranormal stuff. That's okay. Okay. All right. Just because it was really cool. Due to the wild history of this place, some guides and visitors attest to strange sounds, voices, and sinister feelings of dark entities still lurking in the cell blocks. The areas near the solitary confinement cells and the gallows are also full of intense and almost angry feeling energy. Mm-hmm. Amber Byerly is one of the site's administrators and was co-author of the book Old Idaho Penitentiary, and she believes in the spirits of the old prison. She claims to have personally never seen anything other than the, wow, I just saw something I can't explain. <laughs> right. However, she does accept the fact that there are things that she can't explain. She sees her job in a way of helping the spirits tell the world their story. Quote, I never feel a sense of evil. I feel a sense of sadness that can be tempered by helping them express what they need to. There are some evil dudes here, absolutely, she says. I'm essentially Mm. trying to help them tell their stories. So they've got my back. I'll be okay. (laughs) I could see her just like walking around, like doing the okay sign, like, Wiku, Wikuji, everything's great. Okay, bet. Okay, okay, okay. Don't attack me. Um, One way that Byerly knows that there is a spirit present though, is when she notices um, visitors' faces go ash white. So when she sees their face go ash white, she's like, "Mm, I see there's something here that we can't explain. Whether they can, quote, whether they can quantify it, whether they can prove it, and most of the time, they can't. But I've seen those faces, and I know these people completely believe that they either experienced something, saw something, or felt something that was otherworldly. Mm. End quote. An example she gave to AETV was when she was taking a tour through Cell House 3. A woman told her that she felt something brush her hair. Not only that, but apparently the thing doing the brushing also whispered to her in her ear, pretty (laughs) and that's a note for me right like in her ear and it's just Mm. pretty (laughs) no no thanks Uh. (gasps) oh i just whispered in all your ears (laughs) my bad but i don't regret what if it was like a pretty (laughs) (laughs) oh so pretty (laughs) Uh, another story she told um, the interviewer was quote a bus driver came in trying to find her school group she goes into this building and she keeps hearing echoes she's trying to figure out what it is it's just whispers stuff that she can't really discern then she goes into an area where she starts reading one of the biographies And it just so happens that the biography is about the only double execution that we had. Ernest Wellrath and Troy Powell. They died on her birthday, April 13th, 1951. It's almost as if those voices were drawing her in to see that 
and make that connection. Mm. End quote. Mm. One of the most said to be haunted places in the prison was that of cell house number five. If we remember, that was the solitary confinement for the most vicious and angry people. Cellmates. Prisoners. Notorious people. And the most notorious spirit that is said to be roaming that area is that of Ray Snowden. Mm-hmm. When people tour the building, they claim to feel a sinister feeling, and others claim to hear strange voices and sounds. Some even have admitted to seeing dark entities lurking around the cell blocks near the former solitary confinement cells. Which is another note for me. I actually wrote that one down. <laughs> <laughs> also, it has been on Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures, of course. What, what, rutabagans? <laughs> I did not watch the episode, but I didn't have time to. But I feel I'm like sure I might have seen that one. <clears throat> I'm sure am I kidding? Great. I've seen pretty much all of them. <laughs> so go check it out. I'm sure it's great. But since we ended on that dark note, I want to end on a pretty good happy note. Right. This is a quote from one of the places I got. I didn't write this, basically. All of the stuff is in the description. (laughs) Go check it out. Behind the shirt factory is actually the burial of Dennis the cat. Dennis was a kitten who was discovered by an inmate who was working in the chicken coop. uh, Actually in this yard here and they're describing the area. When they went through the gate, they checked in his pocket, but they didn't find the kitten. So he was able to get the kitten back into his cell. The tour guide said he was well known among all the inmates and as well as the warden. Dennis even became a therapy cat for many of the prisoners. After 16 years of serving time, Dennis passed away but did receive a proper burial and was well loved even beyond that. Oh, that's sweet. Prison cat. But he would just wander around from area to area, and everyone took care of him, and he was well-fed. And So that's it. Um, I wanted to end on a cat note, Uh, a cute cat note. I love cats. Cats are beautiful creatures that are too good for this world. Lovely. So I drew psychology. Bet. So we're going on an adventure because the dude I'm covering today is a lot. But so it's kind of weird. I'm going to be covering two people. I'm going to be covering this main guy and then the person who inspired him. Because it's very similar. Okay. So we're going to be talking about a man named Carl Harvey Jackins. Carl. And if I accidentally call him Jenkins, I'm sorry, because that's what I keep thinking his name is, but it's not. It's Jackins. <laughs> it's okay. It's just how my brain wants to put it together. I don't know how you can't remember Jackins because that's hilarious. It's no, like I think Jenkins. Jacket. It's like jacket. It is. But it's just not something my brain holds on to. Okay, I guess. You don't like jackets. Nope. 
<laughs> so when I found his name, I had no idea what rabbit hole I was going to be going down or anything because it took me a while to find a Idaho psychology story. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know how I found this guy. Like I've tried to find documentaries on him. I've tried to find anything and it's really difficult so far. <laughs> but um, let's talk about who he is as a person and his early life. His name is Carl Harvey Jackins, but he just goes by Harvey. He was born in northern Idaho on June 28, 1916. And, you know, that's where things start going sideways. <laughs> that's it. That's the only normal thing. Oh, no. So during the 1930s, he was a member of the Communist Party of America. Oh, my. Yes. And between 1939 and 1941... He organized a young communist league at the University of Washington in Seattle. <laughs> so he's already. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's for the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he never finished his undergrad degree. So he ended up becoming a labor organizer in the 1940s. And during that time, he was expelled just hold your breath, from Local 46 of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, the Building Service Employees Union, and from Lodge 751 of the Aeromechanics Union for alleged communist activities. That's a lot. But, you know, I also had a unionist in my story. Yeah? Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Bill Bob something. <laughs> Billy Bob. <laughs> exactly. In 1954, he was brought before the House Un-American Activities Committee as part of its investigation into communist activities the, in the Pacific Northwest after he was named by three witnesses. Mm-hmm. He pled the fifth and refused to name former associates. Well, at least he was a good friend. <laughs> yeah, he, he ain't no snitch. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> he was probably eyeing down the other people as he did that. The like, ones who named mm-hmm. him. He was probably like, I plead the fifth. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> just in case you didn't hear me do that the first time. <laughs> right. Let me reiterate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was in the early 1950s when he became acquainted with L. Ron Hubbard's theory of Dianetics. No. <laughs> Do you know what Dianetics are? Yeah. Well, that's what but... we're going to cover a little bit. Oh, no. <laughs> Not ready for this trip. Here's where we verge away from Jackins and we go on to Hubbard because this theory is something that I have to explain for our listeners if you already know what it is. So, Dianetics is a set of ideas and practices regarding the metaphysical relationship between the mind and the body. And the man who came up with Dianetics, Hubbard, is a science fiction writer. (laughs) Uh, What is that line from Alien? Uh, I always think of Alien whenever I think of Hubbard's, because that's what the example my teacher used uh-huh ah i can't think of it but <laughs> so he came up with the idea of dianetics for a book mm-hmm. 
he, I believe, he had a dream or a nightmare that gave him the thought of this. And he was starting to write the book, but it never got published. Oh, I'm going to go into that in just a second. Anyways, so we're going to talk a lot about him, and then we'll go back to Hubbard. Or go back to Jackins, I meant. To the jacket. Yes. So according to Hubbard, he was sedated for a dental operation in 1938, and he had a near-death experience, which inspired him to write the manuscript Excalibur, which was never published, and that work became the basis for Dianetics. Okay, question. Mm -hmm. He had a near-death experience for dental? I guess. Maybe they put gave him too much like anesthesia or something. Yeah, I don't know. That's so weird. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't it, know. That's <laughs> had a near-death experience. What were you doing? Dental work. That's yep. why you should not trust the dentist. <laughs> so the first publication of Dianetics was titled Dianetics, the Evolution of a Science. And it was an article by Hubbard in Astounding Science Fiction, which came out May 1950. Mm-hmm. And this was followed by his book, which was titled Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health, which was published May 9th, 1950. So in both of those, Hubbard claimed that the source of all psychological pain and therefore the cause of mental and physical health problems was a form of memory known as an engram. Yes. It's just growing in your brain. Mm-hmm. Just everything that's wrong is because of this memory. And so according to him, individuals could reach a state that he called clear in which a person was freed of these engrams, these memories. And this would be done by talking with an auditor. Yes. Wait, I see your face. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. I'm just remembering. Who, okay. I'm just remembering exactly where this ended up and where it is today. <laughs> I'm just now realizing, yeah, I, okay. Okay, no. let's get there <laughs> together. <laughs> so this is not accepted by the medical and scientific establishment, but in the first two years of its publication, over 100,000 copies of the books were sold. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. <laughs> A lot of enthusiasts emerged to form groups to study and practice Dianetics, and Hubbard wrote an additional six books in 1951, which made them have a big fan base. Mm-hmm. So now, a little more about how Dianetics is defined. Dianetics divides the mind into three different parts. There's the conscious analytical mind, the subconscious reactive mind, and the somatic mind. Right. So the goal of Dianetics is to erase the content of your reactive mind. Which, Uh. yeah, people believe that it interferes with the person's ethics, awareness, happiness, and sanity. (laughs) Same. These reactive memories are what is causing the problems. So the procedure to achieve the erasure of that is called auditing. And what that is, is the Dianetic Auditor asks a series of questions or commands, which is intended to help a person locate and deal with painful past experiences. 
So in his mind, did you do you think that he was thinking kind of like cognitive therapy, where like whenever you go for cognitive therapy, you just talk through your problems and you like specify that main problem that's causing Mm -hmm. you trouble and like subconsciously causing you trouble I do see the similarities but I think this is very much more elevated right I agree with you but yeah I think he took that that thought Mm -hmm. and rolled with it yeah and he kept rolling and he didn't (laughs) stop no matter where he went (laughs) yes because it was very I'm trying to think of the correct way to say this. They believed that it would heal everything. And I will get yeah. to that later. Cool. Not just mental stuff. <laughs> All right. Practitioners of Dianetics believe that the basic principle of existence is to survive. And that the basic personality of humans is fear, intelligent, and good. So the drive for goodness and survival is distorted and inhibited by aberrations. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hubbard proposed this model and then d- developed Dianetics with the claim that it would take away these aberrations. It would take away all your problems. So when he did form Dianetics, he described it as a mix of Western technology and Oriental philosophy. He claimed that Dianetics could increase intelligence, eliminate unwanted emotion, alleviate a wide range of illnesses he believed to be psychosomatic. Among those, this is where it gets crazy, among those conditions that you can treat with Dianetics were arthritis, <laughs> allergies, <laughs> asthma, some coronary difficulties, eye trouble, ulcers, migraine headaches, and uh, sexual deviation, which for Hubbard, uh, to a surprise of none, includes homosexuality, and it mm, and even death. Whoa! I cannot die if I find this one thought that is wrong. Yep. Yep. I yep. Will live forever. Well, I <laughs> guess he didn't manage to find that thought process. No, did he? <laughs> so, in April of 1950, before the public release of Dianetics, he wrote, "Quote to date." Over 200 patients have been treated. Of those 200, 200 cures have been obtained. <laughs> wow. Sure, sure Jan. <laughs> Hubbard initially described Dianetics as a branch of psychology. And then a man named John Attic writes that the original Dianetic techniques can be derived almost entirely from Sigmund Freud's lectures. Okay. So he was a follower of Freud as well. So Hubbard was influenced by many different psychologists, as a lot of psychologists are. They're always influenced by others in the field. But I thought it was interesting that one of them that he is um, influenced by, and I know I'm going to say it wrong because I've said it wrong before, is Carl Jung. Carl Jung. Jung. The guy that I covered in episode 10. His name is Jung. Or Jung. Jung, I think. The one that had the astro psychology and the latent memories. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. That is really cool. And here's the ringer, the thing that you've been waiting for. Dianetics is practiced by the followers of Scientology. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I see where he's seeing the you know psychological side of it, but it sounds a lot like brainwashing to me. Just a little bit. We'll get into that a little more. Um. In 1954, he defined Scientology. So he made Scientology. Yeah. But he says that it's different. He said, no, Scientology is a religion focused on the spirit. That's not what Dianetics is. Even though Scientologists do refer to the book Dianetics as book one. And in 1952, he published a new set of teachings as Scientology, a religious philosophy. So Scientology did not replace Dianetics, but it did attempt to extend it to cover new areas. So the goal of Dianetics was to rip the individuals of his reactive mind engrams. And the stated goal of Scientology is to rehabilitate the individual's spiritual nature so that they can reach their full potential. So they kind of go hand in hand, but they're different. Yeah. In Dianetics, the unconscious or the reactive mind is described as a collection of mental image pictures, which contain the recorded experience of past movements of unconsciousness, including all sensory perceptions and feelings involved, ranging from prenatal experiences before you were born, infancy, and childhood, to even the traumatic feelings associated with events from past lives and extraterrestrial cultures. Okay, though, here's my thing. Not, like, just going off of, okay, so what if this is real? That would be so traumatic. Yeah, yeah. If you relived those things. Mm -hmm. I mean, they say that one of the most traumatic things that a person goes through is childbirth. Right. Remembering that. Mm. Yeah. I would not want to relive that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, The type of mental image picture created during a period of unconsciousness involves the exact recording of a painful experience, and that's what an engram is. It's a complete recording of a moment of unconsciousness containing physical pain or painful emotion. That's, mm -mm. Mm mm-mm. I'll pass. I'll stay ignorant. (laughs) Right. Hubbard proposed that painful physical or emotional traumas cause aberrations in the mind, which produce lasting adverse physical and emotional uh, effects, which, yes, if you have a trauma, it's going to affect you. I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. And that's how he says when the conscious mind shuts down during those moments, they're recorded in your like in your engrams in your unconscious mind. He claims that those cause all of the problems. Um, in additional to physical pain, en- engrams could include words or phrases spoken in the vicinity while a patient was unconscious. This is crazy. So, for instance, there's an example of a patient with a persistent headache who traced, supposedly traced the problem to a doctor saying, take him now during the patient's birth. Yeah, see, that's scary. I mean, so I don't see how that is. to that. Yeah, I don't see how that is. Um, Causing his headache? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> but that's still traumatic. And even if it's like a, even if it's a fake memory and you're just forcing yourself to remember that, 
but it's still scary. Yeah, exactly. If he actually believed that, if knows that he was lying, but then you can like convince yourself that you're telling the truth. Right. So Hubbard also says that leukemia is traceable to an engram containing the phrase, it turns my blood to water. Just that's that's how you get rid of leukemia. Well, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it is sometimes claimed that the Church of Scientology no longer stands by his claims that Dianotics or Dianotic, that Dianetics can treat physical conditions, but it still publishes them. So they're like, oh, we don't believe that, but they still do. It <laughs> says in their public, like in their publications. When the knee injuries of the past are located and discharged, the arthritis ceases. No other injury takes its place, and that person is finished with arthritis of the knee. I wish it was that easy. Right? I know a lot of people who could, you know, use that. (laughs) Right. Um, Let's see. So... We talked about the technique of auditing. It's when two people have a question and answer therapy, and that's how they find the engrams. So after you go through the auditing and you go clear, according to Hubbard, those benefits are dramatic. So if you were clear, you would have no compulsions, repressions, psychoses, or neuroses, and would enjoy a near-perfect memory as well as a rise in IQ as of, of as much as 50 points. So... He claimed that a widespread application of Dianetics would result in a world without insanity, without criminals, and without war. I wish. Yeah. And according to the Scientology Journal, The Auditor, the total number of clears as of May 2006 stands at 50,311 people. That's very specific. (laughs) Yep. I wonder if once you go clear, if you have to keep going back to be cleared. You don't. What if something else traumatic happens? I don't know. It's kind of like the um, Hindu, uh, Buddhist, it's Buddhist, belief of enlightenment. Yeah. Where you're done. It's kind of like reaching enlightenment because you're so much higher than anybody else. Nobody can touch you. So as guessed, the book of Dianetics did have a lot of criticism from scientific peoples. I wonder why. (laughs) The the APA, the American Psychological Association, passed a resolution in 1950 calling attention to the fact that these claims are not supported by empirical evidence of the sort required for the establishment of scientific generalizations. <laughs> it did not get accepted as scientific theory, and a lot of people call it a pseudoscience. I wonder why. Right. So now back to Jackins, the guy that the story is actually about. While practicing Dianetics, which we know what that is now, he developed the concepts of re-evaluation and discharge. He fathered the co-counseling, also known as re-evaluation counseling, or RC. And co-counseling works very similarly to other forms of therapy. So it's one person listens while the other one talks. Mm -hmm. But the main difference is that the client is in charge of the session, 
while the counselor's main role is to just pay really good attention and be supportive. And then they swap roles. What? So. What do you mean? Which, like, I get that. It's like whenever you're venting to your friend. Yeah. You know, you each take your turn venting about things and you're just supportive, right? I get that. Why don't you just make a friend? <laughs> well, they have made a lot of friends with this, let me tell you. It has become cult-like. So at this time, Jackins used some of the terminology in Dianetics, such as patterns, rationality, present time, and passing distress by contagion. There was a psychiatrist named Richard M. Childs, and he claimed that Jackins' book, which was titled The Human Side of Human Beings, plagiarized Dianetics. <laughs> yeah, I mean... he said he said that Jackins literally just paraphrased Hubbard's term by recasting them with his own jargon. So Hubbard had engrams, and Jackins said they were distress patterns. Release became discharge, and to become clear became his term to reemerge. I'm reemerging. In 1957, Hubbard's Scientology organization claimed that Jackins was describing himself as a Dianetics auditor. And so that wasn't cool. You can't sit with us. Can't. You can't. Just take our stuff. (laughs) That was mine. I came up with it first. Right. Teacher, he's stealing my stuff. (laughs) During the late 1950s and the early 1960s, Jackins systemized his views. And in the 1960s and 1970s, he took RC from Seattle, where he first practiced it, and he spread it to the rest of the U.S. and to Europe. From 1975 to 1990, he appointed local teachers, area representatives, regional leaders, and representatives of groups such as, you know, African Americans or homosexuals. He wrote RC's guidelines and decided on all of the major issues. His policies were ratified by a biennial conference, and these uh, these people, Tourish and Irving, they compared his system of management to the communist state model of the democratic centralism. Okay. He he's very like he's in charge. Like <laughs> he, I wear the pants in the relationship. Um, That's what my mom always told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jackins is said to have claimed that several governments were influenced by the RC. Oh. And that eventually every religion will be replaced by reevaluation counseling. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> yeah. when did it become a religion? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was a jump. So his own story of the origins of reevaluation counseling leaves out any mention of Dianetics. And as he tells it, he began to develop reevaluation co counseling. After observing a troubled friend make changes to his thinking process through being patiently listened to while he cried. Now, when I read so many different articles on this, some people said that it was another union worker who was suicidal. Some people said that it was just a friend that was sad. Like, so I don't know what extent, but he said he was just there for his friend and realized that it made him feel better. And so that's why he did this. Which is even more sad that he's just using his friend as a means to an end. Like, <laughs> Yeah, kind of. But listen, it, 
So he begins, he's interested on like, wow, that made him feel better. So he begins experimenting by encouraging other people to cry. Hmm. And then he finds all out. All you need that, is a good cry. Oh, yeah. you mean, all you need is a good, feel bad. So you yeah. can help me. So, so well, cry. <laughs> well, then he figured out that laughter, shaking, and other types of bodily discharge were useful in relieving or venting your pent up old emotional feelings, which is true. Like talking to someone, like yelling, like throwing your arms around, like I get it. It has made me feel better. Yeah. But um, he theorized these led to limitations on the flexibility and intelligence and rationality with which people approached everyday situations. So he identified others who are capable of sharing the work of co-counseling with him on an equal basis of exchanging attention and time and thereby encouraging each other to discharge. I think he just needed a friend to listen to his problems so he was yeah. like, I'll listen to yours if you listen to mine. I mean, get a friend. Like, if you yes. weren't crazy and you weren't using your friends to make a dime, maybe right. you wouldn't have to pay people to be your friend and to listen to their problems all the time. And that's all you do. Yeah. So... They experimented with different approaches and they discovered that effective discharge frequently led to improved clarity of thought, a process that they dubbed reevaluation, which, yes, I get that. He held that rational thinking was prevented by the accumulation of past hurts, which could be removed by repeated discharge through co counseling. Stupid. <laughs> um, and the objective of RC became the dissemination of this method of creating rational thinking, a process called reemergence. So reevaluation counseling, as it is held, can remove oppression, which cons it considers to lie at the root of most of the problems in the world. So it's I mean, much the same thing as Dianetics. Yeah. Jackins, like uh, Hubbard, also believed that homosexuality was a form of distress and uh, it's, it's only a form of distress because you're putting it through the, the them you're putting them through distress yes <laughs> well it gets worse because in the mid-1990s he was criticized within the rc because his views that homosexuality was a form of distress arising from the mistreatment of young children and that it can be recovered or removed hmm. can yeah. we just remove him I, yes <laughs> he has been removed good in 1974 there was an article entitled is homosexuality a distress pattern and he said that homosexuality as distinct from the desire to touch or be close is irrational it's the result of distress patterns and will disappear by the free choice of the individual with sufficient discharge and reevaluation. No. No. Immersion <laughs> therapy. No. No. That's what I this is. False. So obviously he wasn't really a great dude. And it gets worse. Yay. In Love that. the 1980s, uh, members of RC began to accuse him of sexual misconduct. Which was a range from just favoring attractive young women 
or raping them. That's a big range. Big range. Yes. Um, the first allegation of sexual abuse was made in 1981 by a member named Deborah Curran. Her claims were reported in the Seattle Sun and on a local TV station, which is KIRO TV uh, or Kiro TV. I don't know if they put it all together or not. Following the allegations, he was strongly criticized by the Minneapolis and St. Paul RC group. He disbanded the group and 45 members of the RC resigned in protest because he was like, y'all don't like me, bye. And then <laughs> some other groups were like, wow, that sucked. And so they all left. And this is ridiculous. He wrote, quote, the use of these rumors to attack me through the community has been a very nasty problem in the last few months. And there is some indication that some of the spook agencies of the government and their dirty trick department have been involved in this, end quote. So, out of your petty problems. <laughs> we already have enough problems that are at our disposal that we can deal with. Right. So I looked into what a spook agency was because I know that that can be a slur. Um, and I wanted to make sure I wasn't using a slur. <laughs> so a uh, spook agent is someone who was tasked with erasing an issue. So they're not a spy because they don't exist on paper anywhere. They're agents that don't exist, but they do exist, but they're secret. James Bond, obviously. Pretty much, but American. Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, that's Kirk American. Wait, that's. <gasps> Mission Impossible. Wait, is that t Tom Cruise? <gasps> <gasps> Full circle, baby. Scientology is coming for him through Tom Cruise. Yeah. So, uh, Curran, the woman who said she was sexually assaulted, she took out a lawsuit against Jackins, but then she withdrew it when Jackson filed for costs <sighs> in... 1989, a group of RC leaders, which was led by Daniel Lebon, uh, resigned from RC, stating in their resignation that the RC had no scientific basis. They said that he made improbable claims, took a dogmatic stance, and ignored evidence. They said that Jackins had extended the purpose of the RC from discharge to general liberation from all oppressions because there was no discharge and Jacks Jackins knew it. Wow. So Jackins said that suggestions were welcome within the organization, but he advised followers to ignore criticisms of RC leaders, which he dismissed as attacks. His <laughs> advice became RC policy, and RC defines attacks as, quote, attempts to harm a person, usually a leader, or an organization in the guise of disagreeing and discussing. So basically he's making it impossible within the group to disagree with him. Um, so that's just what I have to do whenever I get criticism on my papers, right? No, no. Well, this is discrimination. You are being mean to me. You are bullying me. Obviously. <laughs> I don't deserve You're this not allowed to criticize me. <laughs> the All only right. person allowed to criticize me is me, and I think I'm pretty freaking great. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I have to do. Obviously. So um, R.C. says that, quote, 
People playing this role should not be counseled, but should be asked to apologize. And if unresponsive, they should be made to leave the group and their attacks ignored. So basically, he's saying, you know, you cannot try to counsel this out of them. You need to tell them to apologize. And if they don't, they have to leave. Ignore them because they're wrong. (laughs) It's like what they did in the olden days with the lepers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, to counter attacks on RC and its leaders, RC members are instructed to interrupt the person, approach the accusation as the personal problem of the accuser, and vigorously come to the defense of the person or people being attacked. Whoa. <laughs> That's a lot. Whoa. Basically saying like, no, 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 no. This is your problem. No, 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 no. This is not them. This is you. Hello? No. Like, hello? <laughs> he's, he literally says, interrupt them and tell them it's their personal problem. Whoa. That is, that is not, well, I mean, I respect the fact that it's not passive aggressive, you know? It's just pure aggressive. <laughs> but other than that, no. They're wrong. I'm right. That's it. In 1981, when allegations of sexual misconduct began to emerge, the World Conference of the Reevaluation Counseling Committees resolved unanimously to, quote, reject and condemned as completely contradictory to the spirit and practices of reevaluation counseling, the vicious gossip and slanderous circulation of written attacks upon Harvey Jackins. Whoa. <laughs> so it's like if anyone came up and was like, hello, this happened. They're like, no, it didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. You weren't there, were you? They, were didn't, you even ask for, <laughs> they didn't even ask for evidence or anything. Nope. You weren't there. You don't know what happened. You, you weren't there. Um, So a lot of critics have contended that Jackins ran RC and set it up as an authoritarian structure. These critics focus on aspects of RC's inability to challenge the reluctance of leaders to discuss basic theory or guidelines in the organization as not being fixed or specific grievances about the conduct of particular leaders, including Jackins himself. Some cult websites even list reevaluation counseling as a cult. Jackins did, however, tend to focus all decision-making on himself. In his published guidelines, reserved the right to change rules or make decisions without reference to others, so he can just do what he wants. He appointed all of the regional reference people who, in turn, held authority over decisions uh, affecting the lower levels within the arts, and those people approved his decisions at international meetings. So he literally just stacked everything where he wins. Like, he gets to make the decisions. That's crazy. Yeah. So he has since passed, but the system continues. And his successor is the international reference person. It is his son, Tim Jackins. Oh, Hubbard's Scientologists, you know, the people that he got the whole freaking idea from, they declare yeah. the RC to be suppressive, also known as an enemy organization on their internal list. So it's pretty bad they have a when list. the Scientologists <laughs> are saying that you're bad. 
They have a list. They have <laughs> enemy organizations. Then the entire country of Germany is probably on there. Yeah. So, I'm just saying... Germany completely made Scientology illegal and banned anyone who is a Scientologist. Yeah. They are completely banned from Germany. Yeah, and I did not go into full Scientology because, like, yes, Scientology practice Dianetics, but there's a lot more to that that I'm not going into as a not yet. Here, not now. Maybe, uh, not now, but maybe in the future, but not now. Right. Um, but I just had to throw that out there. Cause yeah, yeah, that's a cool that fact. Jackins did privately tell our seers internally that he once had connections with Hubbard and that, quote, he had tried to help his son and had been treated really badly as a result of it, so he gave up. He gave up. <laughs> he said, you're a giver-upper. That's what you get. That's what you deserve to be called, is a giver-upper. Did you know no, that? He's the giver-upper. Because you... <laughs> you didn't help my son. No, 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 no. What it was, I think... Wait, was it the opposite? I think it was the opposite. I think it was Jackin's tried to help Hubbard's son and was treated badly, so he gave up. I think. Okay. The other way around, but... Might be. Never mind. Still giver-upper. Still giver-uppers all around. So, <laughs> I'm almost done. I have four bullet points left. Okay. Um, Jackins expressed a strong opposition to psychiatric medicine and the mental health system, and he what? encouraged our... <laughs> To oppose it. Yeah. 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 I'm confused. Okay. Yeah. So he, I'm sorry. Uh, you have four points, but I have to make this point. He blatantly said that his practice was psych, it's psych therapy. It wasn't a, relig- a religion, right? Yeah. yeah. So even if it's just pure wrong. But he did say that it would replace religion. But right, but he, but he's saying he doesn't think that you need to take medication for mental health. Uh, like you can just do it through therapy, which I don't see because, like, yes, therapy helps, but I don't see how co-counseling would help because then you're also taking on problems of someone else. Yeah. So, and especially also, if you both have severe mental health problems. Yeah. You know? Whatever. Okay, whatever. Mm. Because in his, his isn't like Dianetics where they have the auditors, which is like, or like, I feel like in Dianetics, they're more trained. And this one's more like talking with a friend. Yeah. So there's a little difference. But um, he repeatedly stated that skilled counseling and aware attention using methods of RC should be sufficient for any person labeled as mentally ill or similar to recover from the effects of their distresses. So just talk about it, man. Have you ever tried think, not being sad? I think he's just nosy, and he just wants to know everyone's problems. Maybe, but I just feel he's like those people that's like, oh, you're depressed? Try not being sad. I agree, and I feel like he just wants to know everyone's issues. Mm-hmm. So, I think just a gossiping 
Linda. I don't know. He is a Linda. He is a Linda. Wow. So, two more bullets. RC is not a part of the Scientology organization, which he did officially leave in the mid-1950s. And uh, is sometimes characterized using the Scientology terminology as part of the free zone of those using Scientology practices outside of the official sanction of the Church of Scientology. In 1957, the Church of Scientology wrote to the FBI. What? Requesting that they investigate Harvey Jackins, who at the time had left Hubbard's organization, but was still calling himself a Dianetics auditor as a communist. So they were like, listen, this guy's a communist. You got to go see him. It was, it was, when was this? What year was this? Do you know? 57. Oh, so they probably did look into him. They did, but they considered Hubbard to be a mental case. And so, well, they didn't look into him because the FBI considered the Scientologist to be crazy. So they just ignored And I think I already said this, but in Scientology, they do more than just Dianetics. Therefore, RC is not equal to Scientology, even though they use a lot, they use the similar practice, this one. Well, I mean, he's on the list, so I would assume that he's not a Scientologist. But that's all I got for us. That's insane. That's wild. sure there's more, but like... That was already a lot. <laughs> I mean, I loved it. I'm glad. Let's close out the show, I guess. I guess so. Who's going to win? I'm going to win. Okay, we're going to do rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Ready? <laughs> Let's see how this goes. <laughs> rock. Wow. Paper, scissors, shoot, victory for the South. What is our topic for next week? So our topic for next week will be (gasps) little piggies. We're doing pigs. Cool. Are you happy with what you drew? Yes. Okay. Tell the people where they can find us. So you can find us at ACOTA on Instagram and Twitter. I have just recently posted on Instagram, so all of you guys should go like it, unless you don't have Instagram. Then you should get Instagram and follow us. Um, (laughs) um, You can also email us your personal stories that we will probably be trying to get to in the next month. So then we can start this new year off with some fun stories of our own and of yours. Um, And you can email us at aceotapodcast at gmail.com. And that is A-C-E-A-O-T-A podcast at gmail.com. Well, thank you for joining us today. I had a lot of fun talking about a cult. And... I had a lot of fun talking about a penitentiary. (laughs) All right. We're going to leave you with that. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. 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 Now. It was a ghost. Ghost. Ghost.
This little piggy went to the market. This little piggy went home. Stayed home. What's the other one? One freaking second. Mom, I'm recording. Okay. You can hear her. Bye-bye. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>